theyeshiva.net. Prophet says, Chukas, page 122, column 2, or Samach Aleph, Amud You see, the Kut Chukas, Samach Aleph, Amud page 122, column 2, Vayas Moshe Nechash Nechashas. This is on a story in Parshas Chukas, which, like many stories, at first glance seem very difficult to understand. Let's remember the story. It's a story about the snakes, the serpents. Torah says that the Jewish people speak against Hashem, they speak against Moshe, why do you take us out of Mitzrayim to die in the desert? We have no bread, we have no water. Our souls are disgusted with this horrible bread that you're giving us. Fiery, venomous serpents attack the Jewish people and bite them. The Jewish people come to Moshe, Moshe prays for the people. Hashem tells Moshe, Asei lecha saraf. Make for yourself, sculpture for yourself, a snake. Sculpture out a snake and place it on a nace. Nace is a pole. A pole and put it on top of the pole. Whoever is bitten by the snake, will look up at the sculptured snake that you made. You craft it on the pole and he will live. So the Pasuk says, and this is the beginning of the Maimer, Vayas Moshe Nechash Nechoshes. Moshe sculptured Nechash Nechoshes, a snake made out of copper. It was basically a copper snake. Vayisimeu al hanes, and he placed it on the nes, on the pole, on top of a pole. Vahoya im nochashes ish, and if a snake bit any person, vihibit al nechash nechoshes, he gazed. On the copper at this copper snake, Vachoy, and he lived. He lived, he was healthy, he was fine. That's the story. Zogdal Tirebbe, the Maimon begins with Isabel Mishnah. There's a famous Mishnah, Saif Peter Gimel de Rishashana. The end of the third chapter of Masechta Rishashana. We started a few days ago the third chapter of Rishashana. So this is the last Mishnah of the third Pedic of Rosh Hashanah. Mishnah asks a question, tell me, somebody gets bitten by a snake, they become sick, and they look at a copper snake, 
they get a, they get healthy or they die. How can looking at a copper snake make you healthy or kill you? And for the Mishnah Ella, there's a metaphor here. Bisman she Yisrael mistaklin klapi ma'ila u'meshabdin es libam laviim shabashamayim. When the Jewish people look upwards towards heaven, towards Hashem, and they dedicate their hearts to their Father in heaven, then they become healthy. Then they live. And if not, chalila not. That's what the Mishnah says. The last Mishnah of Rosh Hashanah. To quote the Mishnah, I'll quote the Mishnah here. Looking up, it's not looking up at the copper snake. It's looking up generally, looking up to, to Hashem, to their Father in Heaven. Then they're healthy. And if not, they, um, they disintegrate. That's the mission. Explaining the story. If that's the case, why did Hashem tell Moshe to sculpture a snake? He to tell Moshe Rabbeinu, if a Jew gets bitten by a snake, he should look up and dive into God. No, you have to make a snake. And make a snake and build a pole and put the snake on top of the pole. And if somebody gets bitten, they look at the copper snake. And then the Mishnah says, what well, does that help me? No, you're not looking at the snake. You're looking at heaven, you're looking up to Hashem, you're looking out of yourself and turning to the Creator of the world, to your Father in Heaven. You're reaching out to Him. That's what makes the refuah. So what are you making a snake for? The whole story is modern. The Mishnah asks a Gavaldika question, answers a beautiful answer, but the answer doesn't, may, may, doesn't answer the question. What do you need a snake for? Tell them to look up. Fakert. It makes the question even stronger. Because by melding a sta- snake, people could misunderstand the message, and they start worshipping and giving extra attention to the copper snake. And if you don't believe me, this is exactly what happened. There's a famous Mishnah in Psachim that for hundreds of years after Moshe Rabbeinu, there was a man named Chizkiah. And what did he do? He took this copper snake that the Jews always had. And what did he do with it? You know what he did with it? Huh? He destroyed it. He smashed it into pieces and he got rid of it. Now imagine that wasn't easy. This is a thing that came down from Moshe Rabbeinu's generation in the desert. Because the Jews didn't get rid of it. They took it into Israel and they kept it. And Chizkiah HaMelech had it. And he destroyed it. Why did he destroy it? Because basically it became an object of worship. In other words, the whole message of the Nachash became misconstrued. <laughs> Somehow this sheer always manages to go in a certain direction. Doesn't it? So do we want to talk about that now? <laughs> so, along, those, along those lines, how could they make a, a, a snake in the first place? Wouldn't it? Uh, this is fashioning uh, an object. Uh, from heaven. We learned in Shashana the problem is fashioning an object from heaven. Uh, the sun, the moon, angels, or a person, but not a nachash. First of all, you're allowed to sculpture objects from the earth. Second of all, even if not, there's a tzivoy. Hashem told to do it. Right. 
Some people do it here in Muncie. They want to keep away the ducks, so they put swans. They sculpture swans, and the ducks run away. My neighbor did it, and I hear the ducks screaming one day. But you're saying it's a life-size, it's a replica. Yeah, a replica. there's no problem in a replica. Or some, I have another neighbor put up a coyote. They sculptured a coyote, a coyote, because of beer. Because of, because of, because of deer. Deer, deer. Ichves. Yeah, yeah. A human face is a problem, or anything from the heavenly planets. Yeah, yeah, the angels. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right, a snake is fine, but in this case, it was anyway a mitzvah, so it's not a shot. Yes. Kites nechasha nechayshes. Because it became something off. So this is Dr. Rebbe's question. The Mishnah is telling me the whole point here is not the snake. The point is to reach up words, to reach to the Rebbeinah Shalom. So what are you making me a snake for? Gevaldi kekash. Va'oit. Another question. What's this idea that when you want to pray, you want to reach out to Hashem, you're looking upwards. Va'haloi mavur being in when it comes to davening, the Chazal tell us in Gemara, Tzarech, Lamata, The way the Chazal described the concept of Tefillah, in Meseches Yevom, is Davkuf His heart should be, gravit should be directed upwards, his Ainayim, his eyes should actually be Lamata, downward. Here we say, no, you have to actually look up. Not only the heart gravitates upwards, the kavan is up, but actually ain't of lamayla. You have to look up, which is l'chayda, something different than we usually see by tefillah. Lahavin zeh to understand all of this. Nakdim lachkoir beinyan yidis haneshama baylam haza. We need to give a hakdama lachkoir to investigate, to discuss the concept of the neshama coming down into this world. As in many Maimarim, this question always comes up again and again. Why are you here? Why does the soul come into this world? Probably the most important question for a person to ask. The main objective of the whole purpose why the soul came down into this world is in order to cleave, to have dveikas, to connect to its creator, through two emotions, primary emotions, love and awe. That's the two forms of dveikas bekaina. The main tachos of the neshama coming down is to experience dveikas. Dveikas means oneness, dibuk, intimacy, cleaving. The dovak beishter, like it says in Bereshis, a man he cleaves to his wife, he becomes one. Dveikas bekaina through ava and yir. So that's how he defines the objective of existence. The reason you were born is to experience dveikas bekoinai ba'avaviyim. Ikira dveikas hubitfila. The primary moment of dveikas is during davening. The words. They're close to what a person can relate to, a person can understand. 
Ubevadai, it's certain Kaidim Tseis HaNeshama Ba'ilam Hazah, before the Neshama left its its space to come into this world. Vagam Achir is Talkusim Lava, Vagam Achir is Talkusim Inagov. And the same is true when the soul leaves the body. It's obvious that Humizdabaki Yoyser Ba'avavi Yeripnimis. He could connect much more and much deeper through a much deeper love and awe. Shaguf Because the fact that the soul comes into the body, it eclipses tremendously the vision of the soul and doesn't allow a person to experience this type of dvekas. Adirab, machmas chumroi, because by nature the body is brute. Yachriyaches haneshom alohanes af megufnis. It forces the soul to enjoy bodily issues, bodily pleasures. Even if the soul doesn't really want this, it's not its interest. The source from which the neshama was chiseled out, from which it was hewn, it was, it was carved out, is it's a part of Hashem. So therefore, it's Ratzin as always, more than anything else, to cleave to its creator. But the soul doesn't always make the make it, the soul doesn't always run the show. Soul is in the goof, and the goof forces the soul to have enough from a different different realities. So a person is feeling tension, person is feeling anxiety, person is feeling a void. The soul knows why it's feeling the void. But the body speaks, and the body says, we'll do a barbecue. The barbecue will solve all the problems. We'll fill the void. We'll take a drink. We'll eat some potato chips. We'll do this. We'll do that. He's getting excited already. Okay, chocolate chip cookies. Make a couple of dollars. You'll get some covet. Whatever it is, there's different answers. But it doesn't satisfy the void. The reason it doesn't satisfy the void is because a person is a chelik imam. A person is divine. So therefore, they need transcendence. They need ultimate meaning. They need real godliness. They need real purpose. But what happens is, when the neshama is in the guf, our vision is eclipsed. And the neshama gets distracted. To the point that the guf forces the neshama and says, Come, join, and this, you'll live it up. You'll live it up with me. And the soul tries very hard to live it up. But it still remains often with an emptiness, with a void. It's still seeking. It's still seeking something. And it may search many, many years for that, in different places, in different situations, to find that wholesomeness. And just material pleasures, even though some of them are delightful, it doesn't really speak to the soul. It's not its language. It doesn't talk to it. You need to know what feeds the soul, just like you have to know what feeds the body. A person will eat cotton for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. It's not going to serve as a nutritious food for your body. The body is going to vomit. Why? Cotton is a wonderful thing. But it doesn't work as food for the body. Physical realities are wonderful, but it doesn't work as food for the soul. It doesn't work for it. It needs the nutrients that will feed it because it's a chelik elikamimah. So therefore, he says, you can't compare at all what the soul experiences before it's born and after it's death. We don't even have a hasaga. Because all of our understanding of our soul is only through the body, through the prism of the body. So we completely don't even know our soul. We know our soul through what we're capable of feeling while we're in the body. 
Imagine what happens in the soul the moment it leaves the body. It's a whole different life. It's, it's impossible for us to imagine what happens to the person before what what the person experiences before birth and what a person experiences after death. But everything is transformed. The goof is still there. It's lifeless. The neshama left, and the whole reality becomes different, which we don't even have a comprehension in because we are always defined by our bodies. And that's the purpose of the neshama coming down here, which raises a big question in this mind. You're telling me that the purpose of the neshama coming into this world is dveikas, oneness with its creator, coming down into this world only, only compromises the dveikas. It makes the dveikas to be much smaller, much less, much less significant, much more impoverished than the dveikas was before or it's going to be after. So that's what he says. The ikatachlus is dveikas. The main dveikas is in davening. But how can you compare it to the dveikas before the neshama comes down and after the neshama leaves the body? You completely can't compare it. Because in the guf, everything changes. On the contrary, the guf is machriach. It forces the soul to live a life that is often alien to its own needs. And that's the tragedy of so many lives. You have a soul. You don't know it. You're trying to feed yourself, but you don't know with what to feed yourself. So you search here, you search there, you search here, you search there. And I should add, sometimes even a person tries Yiddishkeit, but it doesn't work. Because it's not a Judaism that speaks to the soul. In Yiddishkeit itself, a person is searching to satisfy their soul, but it's not a Judaism that's, that, that serves the soul. It's, it's a different type of Judaism. You give a mushroom. You give a mushroom. It'll be much more juicy than if I give a mushroom. <laughs> Of course. My point is, just religion doesn't always satisfy a void, because religion could, in religion, there could be false things too. Just because you're calling it religion, you're calling it holy, you're calling it God, you're calling it spirituality, as we learned many times, people can define things based on their own image, on their own sculptures. They make their own sculptures. They make their own gods. They make their own deities. That doesn't really speak to the soul. Yeah, yeah. Of course not. Every soul after the histalkus it has a vision of things that are very different depending on how the person lived, there will be different experiences of what the soul goes through. But the common denominator is a person sees everything in a different way after their passing, no matter how they lived. It may be a cause of deep pain and shame and embarrassment in the inner sense, like, wow, I didn't realize this. But that's true with every neshama after this talkus. He says, not in the because everything we do in our life, our neshama is involved in. I can't separate my soul from my body. We, we li- it's like a marriage. You live together. You're always married. The neshama and the guf are always married. So whatever I'm involved in, my neshama is involved in. The Balatanya writes in Tanya, that sometimes a, a yid has to know he doesn't have a He's taking Roshay Shalmelech. He says, You take a head of a king, the Taimne Bebe Sakise. 
right? You have a toilet bowl that's filthy, you take the head of the king and you put it into the Besakis. He says, every neshama is Roshar Shalmalach. It's a chelik alakamima. So he says, you have to know where you're going and what you're doing because the neshama is involved in everything. If the guf is, is doing something, the neshama is involved. So the guf forces the neshama to become defined by it. The problem is the neshama protests. <laughs> to what? To be machriach the neshama, yeah. Yeah, the neshama works with the body. Wherever the guf goes, the neshama goes. Huh? Oh no, he says that. No, he says you can't compare. You can't compare the dvekus in this world to the dvekus after Yitzhiyas and Hashem. There's a certain dvekus that the neshama has after Elam Hazard that it can't have in this world yet. Of course. Of course. Of course. What? On some level, certainly. Why is it that everybody has a person? Because every soul has its distinct qualities. Even though we all come from the same source, it's like children come from one mother, one father, but there's so many different distinctions. Is it possible for us to realize what the soul needs? Is it possible to realize what the soul needs? I think it's very possible to realize what the soul needs. He says that's the tachlis of a person. The tachlis is to have dvekus. So before we didn't have dvekus. Well, that's the shaila. Before you had a deeper dvekus, so you're coming down to tachlis is have dvekus, but it's the less. But he says the Iker Tachlis of Yeridus and Hashem is Ladabak Bekaina. What's your Shiloh? He says even more. So then what's the Tachlis coming Okay, we'll see. We'll see. The Hidim of Orbe Zoyar, now it says in Zoyar, Mandalay Mahapech Miridulimiska, Lesley Chulka Bahayal Maklu. In Zoyar Beresh's, it says, that somebody who didn't transform bitterness into sweetness has no chalik in Baha'i al-Maklum. Basically, the Zoya brings over there that uh, it was announced in heaven, whoever wants to come into Elam Haba, it has to be somebody who transformed bitterness into sweetness. Somebody who didn't transform bitterness into sweetness can't have a chalik in this world, meaning in the spiritual world, in Elam battle. What's Pshat? Because the whole purpose why a person was created was Bishvil for this. To transform bitterness into sweetness. During the first base Hamikdash, Lahayim Espalun Khal, they were called in Davin. Interesting Lash. Lahayim Espalun Khal. There was no Davin. But says there was no Davin. It doesn't mean they didn't Davin at all. He means the whole Davin that we are familiar with didn't exist. Because the davening we're familiar with was instituted by the Anshik Nesos They instituted Shemina Esra, Meta Shachris, Meta Mincha, Meta The davening that they had then was everybody davened whatever they wanted, how long they wanted. You could daven for five seconds. You could daven for five hours. By Yisrishan, there was no text of davening. There was no time of davening. The Rambam holds tefillah as a mitzvah esim in But what does that mean? You could be at Mekayim in 40 seconds. You go out to the field, you look up to heaven, or you look down on the earth, and you connect to God. That's mitzvah tefillah. You ask for what you need. 
The Zman of Tefillah didn't exist. It's not Menat Torah. The text of Tefillah is not Menat Torah. Everybody agrees. That's all Midir Abana. Midir Abana. Tefillin, right? tefillin, yeah. Tefillin is a mitzvah in Chumash. Krishma is a mitzvah. Tefillin, yeah. Krishma, yeah. But davening, what did it look like? It says, You go out and you say, God, give me a meaningful day. Let's have fun together today. You were a Tefillin. And it's faster than a lot of other Shachrasim, although some Shachrasim are catching up. Are catching up to that. Not in Gemara. Halacha l'Moshe Misinai, how you make tefillin. But that was part of the oral tradition that was given to Moshe. Tefillin has to be black, tefillin has to be square, what you put into tefillin, etc. But the mitzvah of tefillin, that's in Chumash. Four times in Chumash, you have the mitzvah of tefillin. Parshas Boy, Parshas Vashana. However, when it comes to the mitzvah of davening, all the details, that's why he says, the concept of a shul, it was a Beis that yet. It was a basic, but the concept of a shul—it's interesting. This is the this, this is the first hundreds of years of Jewish history. There's no synagogue; it doesn't exist. There's no shul. There's no tefillah. There's no nakdishach. There's no keser, right? Breakaways. Huh? There's no breakaways garnish. No gaboyim. No boards of directors. No mishabedachs. Mamish garnish. No chazonim. No bali tefillah garnish. Can you imagine? All of Judaism was about intimacy with God, <laughs> not institutionalized. Even in Bayis Sheni, Tiknu Anshek Nesas Agdele Tfilik Tzara. Even in the second Bayis Amigdash, what would Anshek Nesas Agdele Wa Masak? Baruch Hashem, we open our Siddha, Siddha Asach Tzazagin, there's a lot to say. But that's not all what Anshek Nesas Agdele, Anshek Nesas Agdele Wa Masakin, the Brachis and Shmoyna Esra. Right? Then there's the whole addition. There's Psukka de Zimra, there's before Psukka de Zimra, there's after Davening. You have a lot, a lot of additions. You have Tachnon, Metashev, Olatzian, Metbeis Yaakov, Metashev, Shalyayim, Metekave, etc., etc. And then you have before Birchus Krishna, you have introductions. So even after the Anshay Knesset, Agdele, when Mesach and Tefillah, it was still short. But if we're saying that the Tachlis Briya Sa'adam is to transform bitterness into sweetness, this existed then also. This was their avoidant. But it expressed itself differently. In other words, he made a klal here that the reason the neshama came down into this world is for dvekas, to be one with its creator through Ava and Yir. The primary time for that is davening. But in Bayis Rishon there was no davening. In Bayis Sheni was much shorter davening. So the purpose then was different? He says the purpose wasn't different. You just have to understand what it means in every generation. The purpose is always to come into this world and to experience dvekas. The dvekas before birth and after death is so much deeper. But in this world, avoid is to transform bitterness into darkness. So even though the neshama could be forced out of dvekas, a person should be able to transform the negativity into positivity, the darkness into light, the distractions into opportunities, the descents into a sense. And then there was no tefillah, but the concept existed then also to transform. Va'inyanu, to explain all of this. He starts explaining. Ki hadinim nimtokin b'sharshim. He now changes the subject completely. He's going to come back later. There's a klal in Kabbalah, in Chassidus. It's called, Ein hadinim nimtokin ele b'sharshim. Everybody remembers what it means? We learned about this a while ago. Dinim, dinim comes from the word din which means judgments, 
harsh judgments, like a din, a verdict. All dinim become sweetened when you go back to their source. That's a clump. If you want to sweeten a din, you have to trace it back to the shayrish. Explains the hine. What does this mean? Call it rois v'dinim rachmano l'tzlanch and eshavu ba'olam. All rois, all negative occurrences and dinim, dinim are harsh judgments. And he says rachmano l'tzlanch, which means may God preserve us from them. That you have in the world sharsham amakardam amachaya oisam hutayf. If you can go back all the way to the source, all the way to the mucker that ultimately gives them oxygen. In the source, you'll find goodness, positivity. This is what you said about facing one's fears. Whenever you trace something back to its source, you see it in a different light. Even though down here below it looks like din, din means it's harsh, it's problematic, it's catastrophic, it drives you mad. If you can have the courage to take it and trace it all the way back, 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 back to its original, original source, there will be what's called hamtakasa dinam, the sweetness of the dinam. Let's give an example in a person's life. But this example really exists on so many different levels. He himself is going to give a few examples here. But let's just give a practical example that many of us are aware of in different areas of life. Sometimes a person is experiencing what seems like a very intense emotion. And the emotion is very, very negative. It could be an emotion of anger. I'm very angry at somebody. I'm very jealous of somebody. I have tremendous resentment to somebody. I'm not going to talk about Shalom bias, don't worry. But if you want, you could put it in also. But it doesn't have to be that. Whatever the situation is, person is feeling a very, very... And it's not a pleasant emotion. It's not an emotion that opens you up, that keep, that makes you happy, that makes you free. It's an emotion that makes your life miserable. One way of looking at it is get rid of this emotion. But how do you get rid of this emotion? So we all have different ways in, through which we cover up or we get rid of these emotions. But what happens if you could go back to the shayrish of it? What if you could take this emotion and trace it all the way back to the beginning. Meaning, really, really delve into the what triggered it, and what triggered the trigger, and what triggered the trigger of the trigger, which triggered that trigger, which you often need help for it. (laughs) And you go back to the beginning and you will find that there's really a very little sweet child a beautiful, angelic, sweet child who's searching for something that is not negative at all. Probably very, very positive, maybe very sweet, very beautiful, very pure. And suddenly, what seemed like a harsh monster is really a very innocent, pure child who's searching for something very pure. But it developed and it evolved into a very intense, monstrous emotion. You're looking at yourself and you think you're a horrible person and you're experiencing all of these things, but if you go back to the Shairish, it's completely different. That's called, Ein hadinim nimtakim This is not just a truth in psychology, it's also true there, but it's true in everything in the world. He says here, any din in the world, if you can really take it back to the Shairish, that gives it original chayas, everything needs oxygen. 
nothing lives without oxygen. Every thought needs oxygen, remember that. Every emotion needs oxygen. Just like a fire, you take away the oxygen, there's no fire. It can be a huge fire. If there's no oxygen, there's no fire, it can't survive. A person without oxygen, you go underwater, you could be a big bully, you're not going to survive. A thought also needs oxygen. Every thought, somebody is feeding it. An emotion needs oxygen. An example for what? That you need oxygen? I'll give a very ba- I mean, basic, I'll give a very well, quite a well-known example, at least in some circles. I said I'm not going to talk about Shalom Bayez, but the most an example. So. <laughs> so those examples come to mind pretty easily. Huh? A person often in their experiences, in their relationships, say in marriage, for example, because over there... Is often copying of standard finance one six so it's just a uh, practical example, but it can exist with anybody. I'll give an example of parents and children and a spouses. So let's take in spouses. Sometimes a person feels a lot of anger. A husband feels anger towards their wife, a wife feels anger towards the husband. It's very, very intense, and it's not a comfortable feeling. It's not easy to live with somebody and feel anger, even if you're not in the house, certainly if you're in the house, certainly if they're right there. It feels bad for yourself, it feels bad for the other person, it feels bad for the whole relationship. And we take the anger very, very seriously. And the anger grows and builds. And every comment he says or she says, the anger gets exasperated. Mama, it's like a fire that grows and grows and grows. But the fire is living from an oxygen. There's a fuel that's giving the fire fuel. So instead of just looking at the anger... Can I have the mental space and the courage to go back, really? What is making me angry? So you'll say, what do you mean what's making me angry? Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what she said? Did you hear what she did? Did you see? Of course I'm angry. You would not be angry. Right? Okay, I understand. But let's now go deeper and deeper. What's really bothering you? Another marriage, she said exactly the same thing to her husband. He didn't freak out. Or he said the same thing. Or she did this, right? There's something that, it's, there's a message here to you. Something she said or she did or she thought or she expressed herself a certain way or she responded or she didn't respond. Or he, I don't mean to discriminate against the Zohar, the Nekeva Baruch Hashem, works both ways very nicely. And what's experienced is a whole powerful anger, but go back. What's really, really bothering him? And you'll figure out, you'll go deeper and deeper, that actually, the reason he or she is so angry may be the exact opposite. Because they have a profound need to be connected. Every person, we spoke about this once, if you remember, every person has a need of attachment. <coughs> attachment. 
remember B'Shalach, I spoke about it, Barichas. This is, I this, it's already discussed a long time ago, but in psychology, it's now recent, the last, uh, last kuf, it became very big, the idea of attachment issues. Meaning, if you look at a uh, two-year-old child, right, he'll run away from his mother, he'll run away from his father, but he's going to turn around to see if they're there. What allows him to detach is that he knows he's attached. If they really run away, then he's going to come looking for them. I could become independent because I know that there's somebody watching me. The more you allow me to be connected to you and I feel connected, I could become disconnected. If I really have to become disconnected, I can't survive. I need to be connected. We could be detached only when we're attached. However, we also, if we're only attached, we want to be detached because we want independence. So there's two forces in every person. On one level, I want to be one with you. On another level, I want to be separate from you. <coughs> and this already exists in the child. The child is born attached, but sooner or later the child like wants to do something different. We grow up, I want to make my own mark. I can't be my father, I can't be my mother. But what allows me not to be my father and mother is that I have a father and mother, that I'm really attached. That gives me the confidence that I can actually be separate. Because if I'm not attached, I feel something is missing in me, so therefore I can't really be independent. Because I'm trying to be independent, but I'm just looking for somebody to fill me. So you understand the paradox. The more you're attached, the more you can be independent. The less you're attached, the less you can be independent. So the person who's very, very independent without attachment... (coughs) really struggles very deeply for attachment. The person who's attached also wants independence. When a person gets married, that need of attachment is very, very powerful. It's the attachment that allows the couple also to be independent, not to be attached. When this person is experiencing anger, what he may really be experiencing on a deeper level is he so wants to be attached to his wife or she wants to so be attached to their husband. They need that trust, that camaraderie, the fact that I can completely... Like that two-year-old who knows that mommy will always, always, always be here, and therefore I could run away. The pain of the lack of attachment is very deep, so it translates into a lot of other stuff, into resentment, into anger, into alienation, including into a statement, I don't need this person ever again. I'll be married, but I'll really be divorced. It sounds like you really don't want this person, or maybe it's the other way around. I so want you, and it causes me so much pain that I don't feel that trust, that the only thing I can do is, to deal with it is, to cut you off, because I don't have the courage to go back to that place. A father tells me that his teenage child called him Hitler. (coughs) Not a geschmacker thing for a father to hear, Right? The instinct sometimes of the father is a parfres, right? You're living in my house, I'm paying you. You know what I mean? I'm paying for everything you need. And I understand, it's a horrible thing for a child to say, and in the right time it should be corrected. But understand, what is the child really saying? This son may need his father more than everybody else. He may need his father desperately, but because he doesn't feel he has his father... So the pain is very powerful. We don't like to live in pain. Just like we drink, they say, why don't Jewish women drink? 
because they don't want anything to interfere with their misery. So just like we drink, we make substitutes for our misery. I don't want to feel the pain. What do I do not to feel the pain? I say my father is the worst thing in the world. Who needs him? Who needs such a father? He's horrible. I don't need him. That anger towards my father is really a cover-up for very deep pain. And if you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you may find a very innocent, powerful innocence here. So it comes across with all a lot of emotions that we're feeling are secondary emotions, not primary emotions. You know the difference? Secondary emotions means that's not the issue. It's a cover-up for the issue. It's a smokescreen. It's not the issue. That emotion is not what's going on. That emotion is a cover-up for what's going on because you don't want to deal with the real emotion because it's hard to deal with the real emotion. It's really easy, but it seems very hard. That's true. You don't know it sometimes. That's the concept. So today in psychology, psychoanalysis, it's a huge thing, but here he says it in one line. Kol ha-dinim nimtakit b'sharshim. All dinim. Dinim means negative stuff. Yeah? Go back to the shayrish. You see the tree? Go back to the roots. Go under the ground and show me where it started. And there you will find sweetness. Amazing idea, huh? You go to the shayrish, what? Yeah. Yeah. You go to the shayrish and you'll see sweetness. You won't see dinim. You won't see dinim. And that's the real oxygen. The real oxygen. Everything is getting chiyos from somewhere. No thoughts and feelings live on their own. You're feeding them. It doesn't look like you're feeding them. You're like, I'm not feeding it. I really hate this person. I am angry at you. You're the worst of the worst. These are thoughts. These are thoughts. These thoughts are being fed. They're being, somebody is, is giving them oxygen. Go back. What is giving these thoughts oxygen? Always. That's the biggest idea here. I'm not just feeling things. Somebody is... My feeling is alive. Life comes from somewhere. There's a battery. There's an energy. Somebody is feeding it. And the answer is information. Information is the oxygen of emotion. I feel something towards you because I have information about you. My perception of you is feeding my emotion towards you. This person is, ah, this, that, of that, the worst of the worst. Such a person I never met. Such a piafke. Such a bloodsucker. Okay, there's information. What's the information? You say, this is facts. No, I understand it's facts. It's facts that you observed. Somebody else observed other facts. So let's now go back to that. She said something. He did something. She's a red... It's all being fed by my perception. So now ask yourself, and what's the oxygen for your perception? Your perception also is being fed by something. Right? You understand this process? This is a very heavy process. It works with everything. It works with everything. Sometimes the person doesn't have the tools to do it. They may need some help. They may need some assistance. That depends on the nature of the situation. But everything is being fed by something else. It's called the antecedent, the mucker, the shayrish. And the shayrish has a shayrish. Back, back, back. So the perception is also being given oxygen. With, the new, with, this, with this energy that you keep on... Yes, yes. Now once you, once you create it, it's already a fact. You never go back. You never go back. Oh, you told me. <laughs> Interesting example. 
He's an American. He's an American. He's married to a European. He's a real American. His wife, he told me, he's a real European. European and American culture are different in many areas. One of the differences is, not by all Americans, not by all Europeans, but by many. In Europe, the minig is, if I'm European, I come to your house. And you say, Rabbi Jacobson, can I give you a cup of coffee? And the right thing, if you're a good European, is to say no. You're not matriach, your host, to get you a cup of coffee. No. And the right thing for the host is to go to the kitchen and put up a cup of coffee and give it to me. I say no, and you do it anyway. Right? I'm an American, right? If you come to my house and say, can I get you a cup of tea? And you say no. I say, okay. (laughs) And I don't get you a cup of tea. Can I get you some water? You say, no, I don't get you water. If you want water, because I know if somebody would ask me, if I want the water, say, yeah, please get me a cup of water or a cup of coffee. Anyway, this American married this European. Both wonderful, wonderful people. Shortly after the marriage, she asks him, can I get you a cup of coffee? I'm sorry, he asks her, can I get you a cup of coffee? And she says, no. She's, of course, waiting for her angel to get her a cup of coffee. She said, no, he does not make her a cup of coffee. She's sitting there, waiting for a coffee. He's not getting it. She's like, what type of guy did I marry? Mom is selfish. The next day, she asks him, can I get you a cup of tea? He says, no. She goes to the kitchen, she makes him a cup of tea, she gives it to him. He's like, what a control freak. (laughs) I said, no, respect my wishes. You understand? They both now have a perception. He's selfish. I asked him for a cup of tea. I said no. I said no. He didn't make it. And she's a control freak. I told her no. And she's, I'm going to do it anyway. But really, he, she heard yeah. He heard no. When she said no, she meant yes. When he said no, he meant no. Okay, first day. Now imagine, 12 years later, yeah, this story builds on itself. She decided he's selfish. He decided she's an absolute control freak. She doesn't respect boundaries. Every day they bring more rayas to confirm their story. After 15 years, it's a fact. He's absolutely selfish. She's absolutely controlling. And their whole life is based on that. Once again... What happened? The first time, the first time there was no conversation. There was no communication. They developed an anger. They developed that day. It was a little anger. It wasn't a big anger. A cup of tea, a cup of coffee. It's not that. But it was a little. And that wasn't challenged. The secondary emotion came in. What if they could have examined the shoyrish of it? Go back to the pain you experienced and identify it. And you'll see the whole thing was based on a misunderstanding. He's completely not selfish. He's completely not controlling. He's as selfless as you could find and she is as, uh, as respectful as you could find. But it becomes... Uh, this is a very comical, but it's not so comical when it comes to reality. So this is true in almost everything in life and it's true also with spirituality. Meaning when you have instincts, habits, tivus that are negative, in the shoyrish, it's tivus. And he gives a marshal that we're going to finish with today. He says, the last line, 
commercial hazoyne in ben amelech hamavur bezoya. For this, there's a metaphor of the zoyne, the harlot with the prince in zoya truma. Shekol ritzoyne vecheftsa shaloy letzayasos. The zoya parshas truma gives the following metaphor. A king wanted to know if his prince is suitable to take over the throne. The definition of first definition of leadership is you have self-control. If you don't have self-control, you can't control other people. You can't lead if you don't lead yourself. Ezel Gibber HaKoyvesh as Yitzra, as the Baal says, Yitzra, not somebody else's Yitzhara. It's easy for me to conquer your Yitzhara. Right? You know when we hear stories about somebody? I would never do this. Of course, you sin differently. Don't judge somebody else just because he sins differently than you. Not yours. I don't have your tithes. You don't have my tithes. The king wants to see if his prince has control. What does he do? He knows that the prince is a lebedike ingala. Baruch Hashem, his psyche is healthy. So he hires, it's a funny story, but this is in Zoya Parshas Tumi, you could look it up. He hires a Zoyna. He hires a promiscuous woman, a harlot, and he offers her a tremendous, tremendous reward if she can go and entice her son to behave in an immoral way. Understand now what happens. Here's what happens. She approaches the prince. She has to do a good job. If she tells him, the king sent me because he wants to see. Verbistu. It's all over. It's all over. It's a gate. She has to be a zoyna commercial kosov. No compromises. He can't know the secret. But what is really going on here? What does she want? Does she want that the boy should surrender to her? Or does she want he should tell her no? So the Balatanya says that's the oymen. She's asking and begging and begging, but she's begging inside, say no, say no. She knows that if he surrenders, the king is going to be so hurt. And she, she works for the king, she's connected to the king. She's, she's a person of the king. If the boy says no, the king will be so happy. And therefore, her relationship with the king will also be. She'll be beloved by the king. If not, the king will always look at her as the source which brought out who his son really is. If she, if she, if she persuades him and she prevails, it's not So now look at the two perspectives. From the perspective of the boy, who is she? She's Mamish Azoin who wants to destroy his life. From the perspective of the king, her whole union is to build his life, to bring out his koyach, to bring out his power, to let him flex his spiritual muscles. From his perspective, he thinks she really wants him to do it. She knows that she really doesn't want him to do it. But he never knows that secret. So you have her completely two different layers of reality. On one level, she's Ra. And that's true, she is Ra. On another level, she's pure toiv, she's pure innocent. All she wants is to bring out the goodness of the boy by him saying no. So the whole temptation is there just to challenge you that you should be able to become a man. Without that fight, you'll never be able to become a person. If you don't have that ability to lift those weights, 
to fight for yourself, you never become a person. You need to be able to resist. That's what brings out your tremendous koyach. But So from the Melech's perspective, she's just a shliach of the king. To bring out the ruchnius of the child, the toiv of the child, the morality of the child. She's a complete shliach, shluchar shaladam kamaisah. She's the king herself. She's like Hashem himself. She's a shliach of Hashem. What does he see? He sees a pure zayna. If you ask him, he's going to go back to his father and say, punish her, she's the worst thing. Little does he know the secret that she was sent by the father. And not only she was sent by the father, she wants him not to listen to her. So there's a completely different layer. This is an example where on one level you're dealing with Ra. This Yetzirah is Mamash Ra. On a different level he's really all toiv. All he wants is your good. The, 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 the funny thing is, when you listen to her, you think you're doing what she wants. You think you can have a relationship with her. Really, why doesn't it work? This is the source of addiction. Because she really wants you to say no. So by actually following her request, you don't even get her. You get her chitsoinius, you don't get her pnimius. And you know it. So you need more. and You're not even getting her. Because her you're not getting. Because she wants you to say no. By saying no, you're actually getting her. Because <laughs> that's her whole tachlis. She's serving the melech. By saying yes... You think you have her, you don't have her. You have the external self. It looks like you have her. You think you have her. She's never saying, oh, what are you an idiot, what a tippish. He thinks she's all excited. She sees all excited. Nebuch. He's excited with nothingness. He doesn't even know who I am. All sin in the world is this situation. The Yitzhahara lacked. He's like, he's taking me seriously. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. I'm not into this. I'm a shliach. So at the surface, it's one la- re- layer. On a deeper level, it's a whole other layer. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.